Welcome to Financial Bliss with Kelly Long, where we get to the root cause of whatever it is that's holding you back from making the most of your finances. I'm your host, Kelly Long, a CPA, certified financial planner, and personal finance specialist. Whether you're feeling anxiety, fear, or just plain information overload, my goal here is to help you move forward with confidence and clarity and help you find your own version of financial bliss. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Financial Bliss with Kelly Long. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Kelly Long, and I am a money coach and founder of the Find Your Financial Bliss coaching program. In this episode, I'm going to spend a little more time getting into the nuts and bolts of personal finance by covering five very common money mishaps that I see people making, and even some that I personally made, along with tips and best practices to overcome them. Don't worry though, I'll still be peppering in plenty of psychology of money tidbits throughout, so let's jump right into it. The first mishap I see, and this was something that I personally did for several years, is when you only put enough into your HSA to cover your expected expenses for that year. Now, a common reason for this is that most of us start our first HSA or health savings account after having had a FSA or a flexible spending account for many years. And with FSA, because the S stands for spending, you did need to make a pretty good estimate of what you might be spending that year in medical expenses at open enrollment, because if you got it wrong and didn't spend all the money, you'd lose it. And I think most people know by now that HSA money rolls over year to year, but there's still that common misconception that you should only be putting in what you think you'll spend. It's just a little bit less of a nerve-wracking decision. And along those same lines, I see a lot of people spending down HSA money after they switch plans or jobs or something out of this thought that like, well, I'm not using that plan anymore. I got to spend this money up. Now, I'll eventually do an entire episode on HSAs, but for now, I'll leave it by pointing out that the S in HSA stands for savings, and that's how you should think of this account. It's a savings account for future large medical expenses, even after you've left the HSA plan. And even better, think of it as a bonus retirement savings account where you can make tax-free withdrawals in the future to pay for current or past medical expenses. So if you can afford it, the best practice here is to put the maximum amount you can afford into your HSA, whether that's through payroll deductions or even with a lump sum deposit at tax time as a way to lower your taxes even further and hopefully qualify for a refund. So if you have an HSA through work, most likely you can change your contributions throughout the year. But if you can't, you can also make a direct deposit up until tax time to kind of fix this. So if you're not putting the maximum in and you can afford to, I would say stop right now and go fix this because you can change your contributions throughout the year at work, just like a 401k, and get the most in there that you can afford. Now, the second common money mishap I see has to do with 401k or 403b accounts. When I use the phrase max out your 401k, do you know what I mean by that? I find it's a common thing that my colleagues in the financial planning profession say like, oh, max out your 401k. But then when I'm talking to clients, a lot of them think that that just means putting in the maximum amount to capture any employer match, which is reasonable. And while that is an absolute best practice, when I say max out your 401k, what I actually mean is to put the maximum amount the IRS will allow you to put in each year, regardless of your company match. So for 2023, that's actually $22,500 unless you're age 50 or older, in which case the maximum is actually $30,000 this year. Now, if you're over here making $100,000 per year and putting in 6% or $6,000 to get the max amount your employer will match, switching to the actual max is probably going to be too much of a shock to the system to handle. But rather than just write that off as an impossibility, try adding just 1% at a time until you can get up to that max amount. Your 401k or 403b might even have a tool called an auto escalator, where you can tell it to automatically increase 
increase what you're putting in by a percentage point or two, and you can set it to happen on an annual basis. And I promise you probably won't even know the difference. Here's why. If I were to tell you that it's a best practice to put $1,000 more in your 401k this year and increase that by $1,000 each year until you get to 22.5, you probably balk. A thousand bucks is a lot of money. That's 1% of $100,000. So let's break that down by paycheck. Again, say you're making 100K per year, which comes down to about $3,800 before taxes and benefits each payday if you're paid every other week. So increasing your 401k contributions by 1% would just decrease your paycheck by basically 38 bucks or less. Think about what you spend $38 on without batting an eye, maybe a spin class or two, a couple glasses of Oregon Pinot at a nice bar after you paid for taxes and tip. By reframing the amount, it makes it easier to stomach and pretty much a no-brainer to start more. So the best practice here is this. Start with the max amount that your company gives you as your zero that you contribute to your 401k or 403b. Then side note, if you have an HSA, increase your deposits there until you get to the max. Once you've got to the maximum amount allowed in your HSA for the year, which by the way, includes what your company might put in, then increase what you're putting in your 401k little by little until you're at the max allowed per year. And voila, you're on track for retirement way before you thought possible, or at least the ability to pull back from having to maximize your earnings and savings before you would have been if you would have stayed at the minimum. Now, the third common mishap that I have also personally made more than once is making big expense decisions based on what room you have in your budget. And typically this happens when you either have a big jump in income and you celebrate by like buying a new car with a bigger payment that eats up a lot of the increase, or when you finally pay something off. Like I did when I moved to a bigger apartment at the same time my car loan was getting paid off, knowing that the increase in rent would be covered by the fact that I would no longer have a car payment. Dumb. Why? Well, personally, by increasing my monthly rent by $300 that was going away from my car payment, I missed a huge chance to get more financially comfortable earlier in life. If I could go back, rather than increase my fixed expenses, I would have taken that extra $300 per month and I would have divided it into three to treat all three versions of myself. I would have treated past me by putting $100 more toward my student loan payment. I would have treated current me by finding something fun and rewarding like monthly massage or a house cleaner that was 100 bucks a month, but not something that locked me in. And I would have treated future me by putting 100 bucks more into my savings or my 401k every month. And here's the thing. The quicker you can minimize your monthly obligations like housing, transportation, subscriptions, memberships, the less prone you are to a financial disaster due to a loss of income, whether that's from a job loss or a relationship ending or an illness or injury. So live your life according to your values, but then when you're deciding how much car or house you can afford, make sure you're using the right metrics rather than what room you have in your current cash flow. Because a lot of us tend to commit to things long-term and then we get to a point where like we wish we didn't have that commitment that things may be not as important to us and you're kind of stuck with it. So as Susie Orman says, just because you have the money doesn't mean you can afford it. The fourth common mishap I see is a little bit more complex, but I can best sum it up by saying, I regularly see people putting off saving for the future out of a fear of needing the money sooner. Guilty as charged. So here's my own personal boneheaded example, hearkening back to my mid-20s, and here was my financial situation. I had a decent full-time job where I was putting 6% into the 401k to get my employer match. I was putting $50 a paycheck into savings in an effort to get to that coveted three months of income emergency fund. And I was paying, I don't know how much toward credit card debt, but it was all on 0% cards, meaning that it wasn't costing me anything to carry that debt a little longer. And in addition, I was still paying off my student loan, which I had refinanced at a fixed rate of three and a quarter percent. 
So with all of that, I had about $60 extra per month to put toward one of these goals of either getting debt-free, building up my emergency fund, or saving for retirement. If any of my credit cards had been charging an interest rate higher than three and a quarter percent, I would have put that money there. And since I had a decent amount in my savings already, I decided to put that extra $60 toward my student loans. So I'm carrying along with this. And one afternoon at happy hour, I shared this plan with one of my colleagues who was a few years older than me and seemingly way wiser. And when he heard that my student loan was at a fixed rate of 3.25%, he slapped the bar and he said, you should be putting that money into the S&P 500. You'd be so much better off. I don't really know what he meant, but he said, go open an account and buy an S&P 500 mutual fund. Now, he wasn't totally wrong. The general rule of thumb is that when it comes to whether you should pay down debt or invest, the dividing line is around 6 or 7%, meaning that if your debt is at an interest rate of 7% or less, it makes more sense to invest because you can reasonably expect money that you invest in the stock market at large to grow at an average rate of more than 7% over the long term. Now, there are several caveats here, starting with my usual disclaimer that this is not investing advice, but it's an educational anecdote to demonstrate my point. But first, notice that I said the stock market at large, not just one stock. My friend recommended an S&P 500 index fund, which is basically like taking my $60 and buying a little piece of all the companies that are on the S&P 500, which is pretty much all the big companies in the US. Now, second, I said an average of 7%. A common misconception about investing is that you'll have a steady rate of increase year after year like what you do when you invest your money in a savings account or a CD or a bond with a set interest rate. The truth is that when you're investing, the expectation is usually 7% or more, but that's looking at how much the money grows as an average over the years. But to get there, it's more like a roller coaster than like a step-by-step climb. So one year you might see your investment go up like 18% and then the next year might only be up two and then the next year might be down 7%. But when you average it all out, you're looking at probably around 10%, maybe nine, depending on what, on what the numbers are. And really the most important thing here, once you understand that we're talking the average, is that it's over the long term, which typically means at least 10 years, if not 20, 30 or more. So what my friend was saying was, if I took that extra 60 bucks per month and invested it, rather than using it to pay down debt that was charging me just 3.25%, as long as the investment grew by a total average of 3.26% or more, I'd be better off. And that wasn't an unreasonable expectation. Now, for context, as of the date of this recording in March of 2023, when you look at the entire history of the S&P 500, there's never been a 15-year period or longer when it was worse off. And for most years outside of 2008 and 2009, it was up at least 10%, if not more. So what did I do with that knowledge? I walked into my friend Tom's office, who sat in an office across from my cube, and I told him I wanted to open a brokerage account through him and start putting 60 bucks a month into the S&P, just like my colleague had told me to do. So Tom, who was a stockbroker, he leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, well, do you have any debt? I said, yeah, I do, but it's all at 0% or my student loan that's at 325 He's like, okay, how much are you putting in the 401k? And I probably was like, I'm putting in 6% and getting my full match. Then he said, well, okay, are you putting the max you're allowed into an IRA? And I said, no, I didn't want to save this money for retirement. The idea was that once my mutual fund account got to the balance of my student loan, I would use it to pay the whole thing off. And in theory, I would get there a lot quicker than if I just kept paying on the student loan above and beyond my minimum payment. Now, Tom could tell I was set on my course of action, so he didn't try to push me further. And this is where the boneheaded move comes in. I'm a pretty stubborn Leo rising, so I'm not sure he could have talked me out of it. But dang, if I don't wish I could go back and get in my own face, because what I would have done differently is this. I still would have taken that extra 60 bucks per month and put it into the market, but I would have used a Roth IRA instead of just a regular brokerage account. 
Because not only would I have not had to pay taxes on the investment as it grew each year, I also would not have panicked and sold all of it at the absolute bottom of the market, which literally locked in a loss of $800. And that was about a third of what I put into the fund in the first place. So this ended up being a terrible decision all around. I would have been better off just continuing to pay the 60 bucks toward my loan. Now, the reason I pushed back on Tom and didn't want to put the money in an IRA was that I wanted access. I was 25 years old. I was totally fine putting 6% of my salary into my 401k and basically not seeing again until I was at least 60. But that extra $60 a month that I'd scrounged up was not going to be something I wanted to kiss goodbye for the next 40 years or so. What I didn't understand was that I could have put it into a Roth IRA, where instead of saying, see ya to your money, you're saying, hey, okay, so I don't think I'm going to need you in the next five years or so. And ideally, we won't see each other again until I'm retired. But just in case my life takes a weird turn and I need to emergency access you, I know I can get you back again without taxes or penalties. So I'm okay with putting you in this cute little Roth IRA for now. I didn't know that. Did you know that you can withdraw your Roth IRA contributions at any time without having to pay taxes or penalties? Because a lot of people, once they digest that little fact, find it a lot easier to put their extra savings into that account because intellectually they know that it will be better for their financial picture, but emotionally they're just not ready. And while it's important to understand that you have to leave the growth of that money in the Roth IRA till you're 59 and a half, well, unless you meet certain exceptions like buying your first home or paying for education. And I definitely don't recommend thinking of your Roth IRA like a savings account. When you're first getting started saving and you maybe don't have a fully funded emergency account, rather than forego the sometimes fleeting opportunity to put money into a Roth IRA, which gives you tax-free investment income in the future, why not at least put that money in there, even if you don't invest it right away, while you build up the rest of your financial foundation? I wish Tom would have told me that. Because by the time I realized all the cool bells and whistles of the Roth IRA, it was too late for me to put anything into it because I was married and our combined income was over the limits for contributing to Roth accounts. And yes, there is the backdoor Roth for those of you who are savvy money people. But if you're savvy enough to know what a backdoor Roth IRA is, then you'll also understand account aggregation. I had already rolled all my old 401ks into a rollover traditional IRA, so a backdoor Roth is not a tax-free strategy for me like it would be for people who don't have traditional IRAs. Now, if all of this sounds confusing, but you're intrigued, hit me up. I'd love to walk you through all of this in a coaching session. That's my little shameless plug. Okay, so back to our mishaps. The final one I see, which is not one that I've personally experienced, mostly because I'm pretty type A about this stuff, is when someone feels like they're drowning in debt and they're making payments toward their various accounts kind of willy-nilly. In other words, rather than sitting down and making a list of all the money they owe and then sorting it either by interest rate or balance, and then systematically paying off the highest one first with extra funds while making minimum payments on the rest, they are all over the place with random payments. And when I work with clients who are in this situation, it's not that they're dummies. They're actually quite savvy because they found really creative ways of keeping multiple debt plates spinning at the same time. They manage to keep all their payments on time. And then when they do have some extra money, like from a tax refund or maybe one of those extra paychecks that you get twice a year when payday happens to fall on the fifth Friday of the month, they do throw it all at their highest balance or interest rate account. But there's no organization to it. And those payments have way less of an impact than they might otherwise if there was a specific plan in place. So what's the fix here? Okay, so tough talk first. You have to find a way to stop taking on new debt. 
Now, I know this is impossible in certain situations. It can take a little while to get there, but you have to accept that until you can find a way to take, stop taking on new debt, it's going to be impossible to make a plan to pay it off. So maybe that's committing to a month of eating ramen noodles or putting yourself on an Amazon ban or like physically barring yourself from Target or whatever you need to do as a temporary fix, but stop the bleeding. The biggest mistake I see when people are paying off debt besides making payments willy-nilly is when they think they can pay off debt while still using credit cards or other borrowing instruments like Venmo loans or Afterpay. And you're really just robbing Peter to pay Paul. You gotta stop, like cap out at your maximum debt and then make the plan. I'm not saying you can't go back to someday using your Delta Amex to rack up those sky miles, but until some new habits are in place, it's cash or debit only for several months at least. And then you need to make a plan. And that plan includes creating a small pot of cash to help you through tough times and then setting your debt payments on autopilot so that they're the same amount every month. Ideally, you'd also work to refinance the debt to the lowest interest rate possible. And then you just commit to making the same total payment towards your debt until it's all gone. So not till the first payment is paid till it's all gone. That's the essence of the debt avalanche or the debt snowball or whatever winter invoking term you want to call it. So getting a plan in place not only helps ensure that each payment has the highest impact possible, it also helps you to focus less on the debt itself on a day-to-day basis, which can be a huge energetic drag. Plus, you'll have a debt-free date. Like if you put all this into a calculator, I can tell you when you'll have it paid off. And then you're like, well, what if I throw an extra hundred bucks a month at it? I can tell you how much closer your debt-free date would be. And this can help you stick with the plan rather than just throwing money at it and hoping it'll go away someday. Because sometimes those extra payments don't make a huge difference. Like if I say, okay, if you stick to this plan you have right now and it's going to take you six years to pay it off and you're like, well, what if I found an extra hundred bucks a month and I paid towards this? Okay, well, then it'll take you five years and nine months. You're like, ugh, like that's still a long ways away. What would you do with an extra hundred bucks today? You might put it in savings so that you never have to take on debt again until you get to that six year mark. And over time, you will be able to add more to it and you'll have more of an impact. But that's why having the plan can be so much more impactful than just like throwing extra money at your debts randomly and continuing to live on the edge and hoping it'll just all go away. Okay, so that is a lot. Thank you for hanging in there if you're still here. Let's recap real quick what we've covered in this episode. First, we talked about making the most of your HSA if you have one. So best case there is to contribute as much as you're legally allowed to each year and then avoid spending the funds unless you'd have to take on debt to pay an expense. Once you've built up a balance that's at least equal to your deductible, then it's worth considering actually investing your money in the HSA for growth. The best use for an HSA is as a tax-free retirement account once you're done working. If that's out of reach for you financially, at least use it as a savings account to save for bigger medical expenses rather than using it to pay for smaller expenses that you can pay out of your checking account. Worst case, you can always go back and reimburse yourself out of your HSA later if an emergency comes up, even years later. Second is once you put the maximum in your HSA and assuming you're already putting enough into your 401k or your 403b to capture any matching dollars from your employer is to increase your contributions to that account until you're also at the max allowed there. Now, in some cases, you might want to put extra money into a Roth IRA before you put more in the 401k, but the overarching theme here is that the amount you have to put in your retirement through work to capture any match should be considered the minimum amount you're putting in, unless you're at risk of losing your home, then you know, cut back on that. But the minimum is matching dollars, and then you want to ideally save more than that. Don't anchor yourself to the matching amount as the max, because the earlier you save, the less you have to save overall during your working years. The third was about the psychology of how we decide how much we can afford, especially when we hit financial inflection points, like when we pay off a big debt or earn a big pay raise. 
Instead of increasing your obligations by buying a more expensive car or house, think about using those opportunities to treat all three versions of yourself, past you by paying down any debt you might still have, present you by treating yourself to something that doesn't require an ironclad contract, like maybe a month-to-month gym or hiring a cleaning person, and then future you, of course, by increasing what you're saving for retirement or some other goal. The key here is to use financial inflection points to reduce financial obligations, which actually help you to live more financially free sooner. I'm not saying never buy a new car, but get to the point where you never have a car payment. And I'm not saying never buy your dream home. Just don't stretch yourself to make a mortgage payment just because you're used to spending that much money on a monthly basis due to other obligations. Try to find more wiggle room as your situation changes. And the fourth mishap I went over was choosing the wrong account to invest in, basically, especially when you're first starting out. Combine a little with investing money that you think you might need in the next 10 years or less, don't invest it. The Roth IRA is an awesome savings vehicle in this case because you're able to withdraw your contributions at any point should you need them, but any growth you earn from investing the money will be taxed as long as you only withdraw that growth under the rules that say what a qualified distribution is, typically meaning you're 59 and a half or older. And finally, if you're working on paying off multiple debts, make sure you have a plan in place that accounts for the minimum payments on all the debts each month plus one bigger payment toward the account with either the highest interest rate or the biggest balance, depending on which method will be more motivating to you. If you happen upon extra money through things like a tax refund or even just a lucky scratch off that you want to put toward your debt, first check to make sure that you have some cash savings on hand to get to you through unexpected expenses that may have started you on the path to debt in the first place. Then if you have some cash, like a thousand bucks or so on hand, then put extra money toward that one account where you're making the extra big payments each month. Then once that account is paid off, roll the entire payment plus what you're paying on the next highest interest rate or next highest balance and pay it all toward that one and so on and so forth until you're debt free. And above all, remember that we all have money mishaps. And while they may seem like something that is going to ruin your chances for future financial security at the time they happen, I promise there's not much you can't overcome if you're willing to course correct and learn from your mistakes. Heck, I've worked with more people than I can count who not only survived what felt like financial catastrophes like personal bankruptcy or job loss at a critical time, they actually overcame it and are still able to retire at a reasonable age. They're thriving. They're fine. You got this. If you have any questions about this episode, please feel free to send me a message on Instagram at financialblisscoach or visit my website at financialblisscoach.com. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. This has been Kelly Long, and I hope I've helped you on your journey to finding financial bliss. Thank you for listening to Financial Bliss with Kelly Long. I hope you found a nugget to help you move toward your own financial bliss. Please take a moment to rate this podcast if you haven't already. Please note that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice, tax, investment, or otherwise. Kelly C. Long Consulting LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages rising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.